No one, at least no one who is to be trusted, would ever set out on a cross-country road trip without giving some serious thought to what they'll be listening to. We all need some jams for the road. Uh, in fact, in a recent survey that they conducted, it was discovered that the number one thing to consider before you set out on a vacation in your car is what you'll listen to. Think about that. More important than the hotels that you'll stay in so you don't get scabies, and more important than where you're going to get fuel on the way, more important than what you're going to eat, what's on the playlist? Furthermore, according to the 25,000 people surveyed, Bruce Springsteen and Keith Urban were the top two artists on who you should listen to on your road trip. Which tells me there are at least 25,000 people in the world who have no idea what real music is. You know, right? You know, you know, I mean, I can get behind the boss a little bit. You know, the ghost of Tom Joad, born in the USA, but Keith Urban? What in the world? I'm, I'm convinced somewhere in the mid to late 90s, the devil infiltrated country music. There is now only what is known as the genre formerly known as country music. Uh, if your name is not Johnny, Willie, or Marty, can you really call yourself country? You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean... Keith Urban, the demon Keith Urban. Who listen? like, don't bring that trash into my car if we're going on a road trip. And the point is, your mixtape matters. Anybody else remember when we had to uh, record our mixtapes from the radio? Like commercials and all. You had to get your cassette tape that you bought at Radio Shack and push play and record at the same time. And I think one of my first mixes uh, included Annie Lennox, Walking on Broken Glass. Come on, somebody. You know that? Uh, Meatloaf, I'd Do Anything for Love. Like, that was the jam in the 90s, man. You young kids don't know nothing about the struggle of cassette tapes. And Get out the pencils, everybody. We've got to rewind these mugs. And all you millennials know is Peter Quill. He uses a mixtape to hurt the galaxy, but... Uh, lest you think I'm super old, I am young enough to remember when Napster came and changed my life and you download a song and burn it on your CD on your so you had to start the night before it took like 10 hours to download the song. You know, good thing there's no emergency in the middle of the night because you're locking up the phone line. But uh, nowadays we just stream everything. Spotify, Pandora, instantaneous. The reason I'm reminiscing with you and the reason I bring all this up is because the idea of a playlist is actually not a new phenomenon. Thousands of years ago when the Jewish people had to travel from where they were to get to Jerusalem at, three, at least three times a year, which Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, the Feast of Tabernacle or Feast of Booths in the fall. Uh, while they're on their way, they sang dif- different songs to keep their hearts happy and to focus on God. The songs were compiled into the Psalms located in your Bible between Psalm 120 and 
1.34, and they were memorized by the Jewish people. It was the original road trip playlist, which the Psalms or the songs, depending which you prefer, they are identified as the songs of ascent because Jerusalem is located up on a plateau. So no matter where you were traveling from, you had to literally ascend to get there. But this playlist is also somewhat symbolic because these songs of ascent were meant to lift your spirits and your soul would figuratively ascend to God while you were singing. This is important for us today because it could, we could really say that as we are making our ascension to heaven, that's what Jesus promises for all who believe in Him and follow Him. So as we are making our way to heaven here on earth, we are being formed for heaven. And so these songs should have intense meaning for us as well. These hymns speak very pointedly to us about how we're supposed to consider and regard our public worship. And really the question before us today is can we say that our hearts ascend within us as we anticipate worship here? We should regard worship in the Lord's house with the Lord's people as the highlight of the week. And we should look forward to it more and more with each passing day. We, like King David, who wrote some of these psalms, should be glad when they say to us, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so over these coming five weeks together, we're going to look at this road trip playlist, five different songs of ascent. And today we're kicking off the series in Psalm 121. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. Make your way to Psalm 121. If you're new to the whole Bible thing, just open it up to the middle. The Psalms should be looking around in there somewhere. You need the big 121 or pull out your phone, get out the Bible app, iPad, whatever, and find 121. Title of my message this morning, Guardian of the Galaxy. I already threw a shout out to my man Peter Quill, but Drax, Gamora, Rocket, you know, Groot, y'all are important as well. Uh, while I find you helpful and beneficial to the universe, today we are going to discover the real guardian of the galaxy. Let's go. 121, verse 1. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. How many of y'all thought that was weird? That the moon is going to harm you at night? Y'all ever been moon burned before? No, you, you haven't. But the reason he brings that up, in ancient literature, they thought the moon actually caused uh, psychosis. It's where we get the word lunacy. And so he's saying that the Lord will protect you even at night from werewolves and whatnot. In case you get become a werewolf. I don't know. That's not in the Bible. Verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. God, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Send uh, us a message. Speak to us. Open our hearts. Open our eyes. 
Help us be changed. Let us leave this place one step closer to Jesus. We are thankful for the free gift of salvation in his name. Amen. So when I was a kid, my family went on a pretty epic road trip. My grandma, mom's mom, had an RV, and I don't really remember how long it took us or where we even started the trip from, but what I distinctly remember are the KOA campgrounds and trading buttons with all the old people who had matching vests, you know, hashtag life goals, where... You know, wear a matching outfit with Laura at some point. That'd be awesome. Um, but I distinctly remember that. I distinctly remember the Statue of Liberty and buying a Bart Simpson t-shirt on the little trailway. They had all the people, like, it's trying to sell fake Rolexes and t-shirts and everything. I distinctly remember that. I distinctly remember at some point going over to Lake Michigan. We were not allowed to swim uh, because there was like helicopters looking for somebody who had capsized or something. But what I don't ever remember was a sense of danger while we were traveling. Now, certainly that could have been some of my age, but in fairness, travel in America is relatively safe. Most of us have no idea what real danger while traveling is. Sure, it can be scary traveling at night, especially if you're in an unknown area, in an unknown area but you can get into your big camper or your huge tent, or if you're like me, your four-star hotel. So my family calls camping. You know, it's four instead of five. It's downgrade. Uh, but wherever you are, for the most part, we can prepare for the variables along the road. A thousand years ago, not the case. You're taking a big risk as a traveler. Families had to bring a lot of money for the sacrifices that they were supposed to purchase while they're in Jerusalem. They had to bring enough food for the entire journey and water for the journey. They're traveling in the desert. There's no RVs back then. There are no Yetis to keep your food cold and your water cold. Mike Lindell had yet to create the finest pillow ever known to man. And so if you managed to find a comfortable rock to sleep on, you were grateful. REI had yet to come along and revolutionize the sleeping bag and the ground pad. So on your road trips, you looked up to heaven and at the stars and prayed to God that there wasn't a scorpion or a snake that was going to slither across your body in the middle of the night. And depending how many people you're traveling with, you either are or are not a soft target for wild animals and thieves who are looking to make some extra cash along the way. So when the author of Psalms starts out with, I lift my eyes to the mountains, or your translation might say, I look to the hills, where does my help come from? Does it come from there? It's important to realize that they might need actual help. This lyric is not a hypothetical scenario. They're singing, when we're in danger, who's going to help us? Where does our help come from? Does it come from there? Does it come from up in the mountains? Are the people up there going to come down and help us? It's equally important to understand that he means when he poses this question that what is on top of the mountains and top of the hills is important. What's up there? In old days, kings, castles, governments, armies. Why are they on the hills? Because hills offer safety. Higher ground is a tactical advantage. So if you're a government or you're a king, you're going to build your empire on top of a hill. 
In other words, when these people are singing, when I need help, should I look to the government? Is my help going to come from there? Good Lord, I think not. You know, I think we can all answer that for ourselves. Which, listen, I'm pro-USA. I'm pro-government. You know, when I was in kindergarten, I told my teacher the only crowns I needed were red, white, and blue. Come on, somebody. Like, that's all I need to color with. So, like, I'm for everything within the government. But as a history and political science major, if I know anything, I know that the government isn't going to save me from anything. It's a scary time as a parent because I don't know if we'll get there in my lifetime, but in my kid's lifetime, with the rhetoric that's being thrown around, very much leaning towards government should just do everything for you. Free health care, free college, free food, free money. You don't need to worry about anything. Government's going to take care of you. I don't know if you've ever seen some places in the world where they've tried that, but it hasn't really worked out all that well. And so it's kind of scary to think about it. So I'm not going to look to Capitol Hill to help me for anything. And I'm going to do everything in my power to limit the size of the government where I live. But governments are not the only thing located on the tops of hills. If you'll read your Old Testament carefully, you'll find people set up their false gods and idols and Asherah poles and all that nonsense on high places, the tops of hills. Matter of fact, high places are mentioned 117 times in your Old Testament. Every time God commands them to be torn down. Frequently, they're not all torn down. Point being, a lot of people look to false gods for help. And this song is asking, I look to the hills, does my help come from the government? I look to the mountains, does my help come from these false gods, these 26 Canaanite gods that I see, uh, you know, shrines up towards when I look to these hills? Is my help going to come from there? Maybe I should ask you, what false gods are you looking to for help? Oh, I don't, I don't have any false gods, Pastor. Are you sure about that? doesn't have to be a shrine. A false god is anything you look to for what God alone has promised to deliver on. Anything that you think is going to make your heart happy, that's a false god. Because God's biggest promise in your life is new life, joy, salvation through His Son, Jesus. And if you're looking for something for joy and happy and safety outside of God, money, anybody... You know, I'd venture to say that everybody in this room would say at least one of their problems could be solved with a little more money. Except that's not true. God is responsible to take care of you. We look to a lot of things as false gods. Sex, you know, social media, TV, food. Anything to distract ourselves from what God is actually willing to provide are false gods. So listen to me now, in and of themselves, those things are not wrong. They're not sinful. But when you look to them for answers, they are absolutely sinful. It's idolatry. So you want a breakthrough this morning? You want something that you can take out of here today? Answer this question, what is it that I don't understand about God that makes this item so attractive? What is it I don't understand about God that makes this, whatever that is for you, likely sin, so attractive. 
If you can answer that question, you'll have a breakthrough this morning. Because until we get to the place in our lives where our high places aren't more attractive than our God, then we'll always be stuck in sin and bondage. Make no mistake. Sin chatters in your mind, seductively telling you that I can meet your needs better than God. I have a better solution than the one God is asking you to go for. God is holding out on you. He's keeping you from your best life. And again, it works for a little while. If sin didn't work for a little while, we wouldn't be tempted to do it. But it eventually runs out. And the well runs dry. And you've got to find something new. Because God has already provided everything you need. Everything. You don't need to trek to the high places anymore. When it comes to this passage, we don't look to the hills. We look above the hills. To the place God is. And when you look above the hills, you'll discover, number one, you can sleep because God never does. Jot that down. You can sleep... Because God never does. Verse 3, He will not let your foot slip, because He will never slumber. The God of Israel never sleeps nor slumbers. In other words, relax. God's got this. What are you so worried about? Did a little research for you. I found the number one reason why you can't sleep at night is light exposure. Number one reason. Your body produces melatonin to help you fall asleep, but light counteracts the effects of melatonin. So you don't fall asleep at your job during the day. It's a helpful thing. Light keeps you awake, Uh, which means all of your swiping and all of your binge watching late at night, it's actually keeping you up. You say, no, that actually helps me fall asleep right away. It might be true. I think those things help you fall asleep. Some people have the TV on at night, but you're actually not getting into full cycle REM sleep. Science has proven that. So even if you fall asleep, you're not getting the best sleep that you can get. And parents, this is a big deal for your teens. There was a vast study done just a couple years ago showing the impact of cell phones at night on grades and schoolwork. And because your kids are staying up all night swiping and gramming and everything else and tweeting and texting, they can't fall asleep. And in turn, the study found your kids are quite literally getting dumber. Nobody said amen to that, which is good. I'm glad. I was just expecting some, you know. Uh, But that's why the smartphones come now with locks and timers and tracking because we're all addicted to the phone and it's hurting our future and it's not helping anything you know when it gets dark make the phone dark you know shut it off people that's what it is the second reason you can't sleep stress and anxiety you're thinking about your job you're thinking about your calendar you're worrying about things that you can't control you're having these made-up conversations in your mind and if i see them i'm going to tell them this because they did that and then i'm going to come back because they're going to say this and you're just having these conversations and it's stressing you out and you're having anxiety and you can't sleep so why the bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger because it doesn't help you with anything 
especially falling asleep. You just stew on that and you chew on it in your mind. And if it's between you and your spouse, you roll over and you give them the back and you can sleep on a space about that big in your king size bed because you don't want to get close to them. And you're just angry all the time. Now you can't sleep. The Bible says don't be anxious about anything, but through prayer and petition, present your request to God. You got to start winning the battle in your mind. We're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it, but it's a real thing. Stress and anxiety. Can't sleep. Third reason you can't sleep is because of an inconsistent schedule. Your body doesn't know it's time for bed because every other night you're out galvanizing around or doing whatever you want. Never developing any consistency. Parents, let me talk to you. This is why having a schedule for your young children is so valuable. Because they feel love and safety by knowing what to expect. And sleep is a big deal for little kids. Now, here's the good news. On all three of the insomnia variables, they're all curable. You can shut off the phone at night. You can develop a schedule. You can turn your worries over to God. I'm not saying any of those things are easy. I'm saying they're doable. Check out 127 of Psalms, one of the other songs of ascent. Look at this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord is in control of your life, in other words. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. What's that say? For God grants sleep to those He loves. Good news for you, for God so loved the world. God loves you. Your cell phone don't. Your schedule doesn't. That food you love, it don't love you back. I can see it in my midsection every time I wake up. It ain't loving me at all. It's clinging to me. That's just something else. Uh, So I'll ask you again. What is it that you don't understand about God that makes this world so attractive. God has something better for you than any of those things that they, you think they can provide for you. What makes it so attractive? Why do we need to be distracted? Moving on, look at verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all harm. Help me out, what kind of harm? All harm. Now this was you know, written in Hebrew and it's poetry, so you kind of got to put everything into context. So I looked it up for you. The word all, it literally translates everything. All harm. You say, well, what about this? No, all harm. The Lord is going to keep you from all harm. So here's what I want you to write down. Your hurts won't lead to harm. Your hurts won't lead to harm. God never promises to keep you from hurt. He 100% promises to protect you from harm. You've probably heard me say before that hurting with hope still hurts. But again, hurting doesn't lead us to harm, which is why you can have hope. There's a a vast difference between the two. It might sound sound like semantics, hurt and hope, or hurt and harm. What is the difference? The difference is body and soul. We think so much of keeping of the body and of a man's outward circumstances. 
But by comparison with the soul's well-being, God counts bodily things of no importance. Hence, our idea of being kept and God's idea of being kept may be very different. One commentator I read wrote, God may preserve a man's soul when he lets his outward affairs go all to ruin. For the sake of his soul, this may be needed. But if his soul has been kept, has God not been true to his word? Of course he has. He's kept you from harm. So let me explain it like this. All the water in all the oceans cannot sink a boat unless the water gets inside the ship, right? In the same way, all the trouble in all the world cannot harm us unless we let it get inside of us. That's the promise of the psalm. God guards you from every evil. He can keep it from getting inside of you. He watches over your life. It doesn't mean that accidents won't happen and people won't die unexpectedly and calamity won't strike at the most inopportune time. And of course, all of those things hurt, but your soul remains intact. God will not allow harm to come to you. The only serious mistake we can make when illness comes or anxiety threatens or when conflict disturbs our relationships is to conclude that God must have gotten bored looking after us and he's shifted his attention to a more exciting Christian. I mean, you know, surely there's another Billy Graham out there, so God must have become disgusted with us and our meandering disobedience and he's just going to let us fend for ourselves for a little while. No, 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 no. God's interest does not wax or wane in response to your spiritual temperature. I could give you dozens of examples of this throughout all of Scripture. In fact, the overarching theme in the entire Bible is look at how foolish these people are, yet God remains faithful in spite of that. He's the ultimate guardian of the galaxy, which is why we have to look above the hills for our help. God is there to help you. Third lesson, the faith that works in the big things also works in the little things. Faith that works in the big things, which we're all looking for big things, well, it starts with the little things. It's hard for us to believe God would take time to meddle in our trivial lives. So we don't generally invite him to be a part of the small things. It'd be like asking a famous surgeon to put iodine on a scratch. No, it'd be easier for us to come up with our own remedies So we WebMD it, and we come up with our own plans for our life, and we're masters of our destiny, and so we're going to go to this college, and we're going to get this degree, and then we're going to move into this city, and we're going to find this spouse, and we're going to get that job, and we're going to take control of our lives, and we're going to add X amount of dollars, and we think about all of the big things, and we might even pray to God for some of those things, but the real test is how are you doing in all the small things leading up to that? God wants to be a part of every aspect of your life. He is everywhere, and He cares about everything. It's verse 8. The Lord watches over your coming and going, both now and forever. The big idea is the Lord watches over all of it. doesn't matter what you're doing. 
and He protects you from harm. But listen to me, you've still got to go out and live life. I mean, surely you realize by now that coming and going, it requires a movement. I guess let me say it this way. You're somewhere on a spiritual journey. You might be the hardened, most hardened atheist ever to walk through the doors of a church and you're saying, I'm just here to make somebody happy. You're on a spiritual journey somewhere. It might be on the wrong path in my contention, but you're somewhere, which means, listen to me, you've always got a next step. If you're on a spiritual journey, there's always one more place to go. You might be at the beginning You might be towards the very end, but everybody's got a next step. Hear me, until there's not. And we don't know when that not is going to occur. To me, what's even more scary than dying is leaving something on the table. Like when I get to heaven and God plays the movie of my life and I see some things up there, I was like, well, that never happened. And God says, well, it should have. It's what I wanted you to do. That's even more scary to me because God doesn't remember all my sins. He said those things are, are from, I'm casting that far as the east is to the west. I don't have to make an account for that because Jesus paid for that. What I do got to answer to is all the things God put in my path and I didn't have the courage to step up and do them. That's even more scary to me. And if you're stationary in this life, God's likely getting ready to start prodding you into movement. Look no further than his disciples in Jerusalem after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. What was the command? Go make disciples. What did they do? Hang around Jerusalem. What did God do? Allow a massive persecution to occur that forced them out. I'd rather go without that kind of reminder. Wouldn't you? People around you dying, getting drugged from your home. On a more practical level, many people want the big things in life without putting in the time and effort on the little things. So if you get nothing else, I say you have to get this. God will not give you what He's gifted you to build. Everybody wants to win the Powerball and win the lottery and... God's not going to give you, and they're praying for it, God's not going to give you what He's gifted you to build. You've got to go out and do the work and put in the time and put out the effort. You're looking for a handout, and God's saying, no, put the time in. Do the work. Sure, He's going to watch over you and protect you and guard this galaxy from harm and spinning off into some sort of black hole or getting too close to the sun and God's got all that under control, but He also made you for a reason. And the reason is to bring Him glory as you act as His ambassadors here on earth. And you work hard at your job to show the people around you who are lazy, no, God changed me, and so I'm going to come in early, and I'm going to stay late. I'm going to do the best I can with what God has given me because His Son died for me. I did nothing to deserve that. And in response, I'm going to praise His name. Everything I do, whether I eat or drink, I'm going to do it all for the glory of God. Watch this, 1 Peter 2.25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your soul. That's what God is. Eight times 
in the eight little verses that we just read in Psalm 121, God is referred to as a watcher or a keeper or a guardian. And what are you so afraid of? Failing? Who cares? Failing is part of the process. People are way too worried about failure. Until you become okay with failing, then you're just going to be paralyzed by inactivity. That's what failure causes. Inactivity. So let me give you an example that's going to tie all this together in a nice pretty bow as we get ready to close. There is a race in Utah called the Moab 240. It is 238 miles through desert trails and up rock canyons and through mountains. To put that in perspective, if you would walk not on interstates from Wichita to Kansas City, it's only 212 miles. This is 238 miles. But besides the mileage, this course covers 29,467 feet of ascent and descent, which is more than Mount Everest. All the contestants are given roughly 100 hours to finish their 238 miles. As you can imagine, most people don't finish. Because when you're running the equivalent of nine marathons, back to 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 back, up and down Mount Everest, it's a little challenging. Even still, a woman named Courtney Dowalter ran those 238 miles in 57 hours and 59 minutes and a few seconds. She beat her closest male competitor by 10 hours. Let that sink in. She could go back to the hotel room, get a nice shower, sleep for eight hours, go get a fantastic meal down at Ruth's Chris, come back to the finish line and say, oh, you're just crossing, that's cute. You know, congratulations. But here's why I think this is applicable to our conversation today. Courtney only slept 21 minutes. Of the 3,480 minutes that she was running, she sacrificed two sleep intervals, one 20-minute section, which she said she didn't sleep very good, and one one-minute section, which she said is the greatest full REM cycle of sleep that she's ever had for a minute. And she had to sacrifice sleep in order to win. Well, the Bible repeatedly calls your life a race. And in our race, we can sleep comfortably not 21 minutes because the God of the universe is never going to fall asleep. And Courtney had to solve problems and go through hurts all along her journey multiple times, figure out which path she needed to take and how she was going to get there. And the good news is, in our case, God wants to be there with us to help us along the way. Small things, big things, it doesn't matter. God wants to play a part. And the thing that I want you to wrestle to the ground this morning is are you running your race in such a way to win? I need you to know that the reward you get for overcoming the last challenge is the next challenge. There's not a finish line in this life until there's not, until there is. You see what I'm saying? Like we run and we run and we run and there's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and finally the next thing is standing before God. Don't live your life in such a way that the only thing you're looking forward to is retirement. It's nowhere in the Bible. You should run your race the hardest towards the end of your race. 
helping everybody around you because you're not burdened down with a job. Teaching them how to love your wife and husband the best that you can and what it means to work hard all throughout the days of your life so then at the end of your race you can work even harder helping the people around you. But I need you to hear this. God doesn't have to guard the people who are sitting in the shade. They're comfortable. That devil ain't going to you know, pedal around with people who aren't doing anything. Just let them sit there. Let them be inactive. They're not living the plan God has for their life. Why do I need to make them sin anymore? And so if you look at your life and you're like, man, this is comfortable, this is shady, this is nice, I've got everything I could ever ask for, it's cool, there's no need to trust in the Lord, might I submit to you, you're probably not on the path God has called you to. And if you're way off the path, what you have to hear me say is the best news I could ever give you is God is the pace setter standing right next to you. He's meeting you exactly where you're at to get you back onto the path that He has you on this planet for. That's why He sent His Son, Jesus, to give you an example to follow. And even if you haven't been following, God's ready to steer you back on the course. Can I hear a better amen, somebody? It's a story of life. Take your next step closer to Jesus. Do the next thing that God has asked you to do, but never be comfortable in this life. It's not what God has asked you to do. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, thank you so much for gifting us this planet, gifting us another day here on earth. God, we know that you are the guardian of this galaxy, that you have a plan for our life better than anything we could come up with on ourselves. God, many of us in this room have been trying to write our own story, but we're ready for you to take over. Help us discover what this next step is for our life. What is the next challenge? Help us overcome it with your power. God, if we're completely off course, send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to lead us back. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of looking to high places for our help. We repent of those things. We trust in your name the power that your son Jesus gives to us by his resurrection from the dead. Help us surrender our lives to you wherever we're at on this journey. Bring us one step closer to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.